remember, I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? What about the warrior? Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> And welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I am your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous co-host, Andy Goodman, again, off for the evening. She's a journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor. We are your host for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy with folks because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Co-founder Kenny Kane also off for the evening at some concert of some sort with music. He is uh, welcoming, and I am welcoming, we are welcoming, all of our first-time and returning listeners here on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and or listening to the archive on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show, Stupid Transplant, Bone Marrow, Stem Cell, and Blood Transplants. Oh my, join us for an exclusive broadcast tonight where we discuss all things transplants with Susan Stewart, the Executive Director of BMTInfonet.org, Dr. Amir Steinberg, and Survivor Sarah Patterson. Survivors followed on Young Adult Particular Survivor. Tom Cantley. I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live feeding throughout the broadcast at ChemoDeck. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SBRadio. Okay. We're down two men tonight, but we have... We're down two people. We have a... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's right. <laughs> There's a bearded man to your I left. I can't use if, uh, euphemisms anymore. <laughs> but we are four, uh, four six of the stupid cancer staff. Yes, we are indeed. In one, in one place. Yes. Is that dangerous? I don't think so. No. I think I think a lot of staff driving, work right? in the same <laughs> office, right. interestingly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, happy Halloween. Happy, happy post-Halloween. Happy Dia de los Muertos yes. and all of those fun things. Maureen, you had an extraordinary costume. You went as zombie Maureen. Uh, yes, I went as zombie Maureen with a, my dear friend Thea um, on Friday and Saturday. Thea and our friend Scott and I went as the three amigos. Right. Were you Steve Martin, Martin Short, or Chevy Chase? I am Martin Short. Thea is Steve Martin, and Scott is Chevy Chase. But that's because he's the tallest. Okay, fair enough. And I think that I might be the weirdest. So I'm <laughs> Short. So very nice. Yeah. And now, what do you do for your uh, Halloween? Now's Mike was quiet for Halloween, so she's coming right in right here. There. Yeah, I ended up going as a French press. Really? Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's a great idea for costume. I dressed in my best French garb and brought a notepad and press badge with me. It was fun. Very oh, nice. that's really funny. Wow. I love that. I like funny. Well done. Yeah. Melody's mail. And Sean, Shapiro, here, our brave new director of development. Bonjour. What was your Halloween costume? I was uh, Wilfred from the hit FX show with Elijah Wood. I was a scruffy dog, and that guarantees getting petted every Halloween. So. <laughs> Sean made I a lot of friends. A great, lots a and great lots of strategy. Mm-hmm. Well, you saw my kids. My son was um, Thomas the Train. My daughter was a homemade robot. It was adorable. Thank you to my wife for making a homemade costume out of a, I think it was a JCPenney bag, but it was good. 
My mom made us homemade costumes our entire childhood because she, she was really good at sewing. She had kind of grown up in that age when people should learn how to sew. Yeah. And I always thought it was the worst thing ever. I'm like, I want to get one of the cool store-bought costumes like my friends have. And then I went to college and discovered that store-bought costumes are the worst thing in the world. <laughs> I'm like, can my mom just make all my costumes? Right. <laughs> well, they smell. They're all like this hard, hard, yeah, hard plastic. Yeah, they're poor quality. Yeah, I had no idea how, how poor quality they were because I'd grown up without them. Exactly. In any case, well, happy post-Halloween. We hope all of our listeners had a uh, wonderful experience and did not go into too much of a uh, candy coma post-event. Eat an apple. Yeah. Good for your teeth. Exactly. Although I, one of my neighbors gave us raisins growing up, like, you know, the little box of sunmade raisins, the mini, tiny little sunmade raisins. They're like, really? I can get Kit Kats next door, lady. I'm I would I would have like dipped them in chocolate for my right. children. And be like, hold on, these are going to be good in a Just second. the whole box, not even <laughs> opening them up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, in any case, um, tomorrow is election day, so mm-hmm. anyone listening to the show in a timely fashion, like tonight or tomorrow, please go out and vote. It is the only way you can actually not regret not voting today after mm-hmm. you candidate doesn't win. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Yes. Should be a fierce competition for the midterms this year. Yes, it's a it's a big deal. So. If you want your party in there, you better, yep. better, better turn up. So for those listening after Election Day, uh, either congratulations or we're sorry. Yep. <laughs> or probably it's the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, anyway, I did want to make a note about Andy. Uh, Andy Goodman, who's been co-hosting the show with me since January of 2012? No. 2013? I, I don't know when it, it was. End of 2013. It was when I joined the staff. Oh. Right? Wasn't it? That was 2012. That was, it was November 2012, so end of 2012. Right. So almost two years. Yeah. Pretty much two years. Yeah. Uh, she is retiring from the show to pursue personal interests, and she is... Yeah, she's retiring to Cabo. Just yeah. kidding. Yeah, she's going to go oh, babysit sharks and do- dolphins. Really? But I wanted to extend uh, our most heartfelt uh, heartfelt. Uh, gratitude for her contribution to the broadcast, and she will be missed. We mm-hmm. love her very much, and who knows, maybe she'll turn up as a guest down the road. We but, miss you uh, already, we miss you already, Andy Goodman. Thank you so much for all of you. You get a special round of applause, Andy Goodman. And everybody, remember to follow Annie on Twitter at AnnieG917. AnnieG917 on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I don't know her Instagram handle, but I'm pretty sure she links to that. Right. She does How Handy. It is also AnnieG917. AnnieG917. Good consistency, Annie. Yeah, wonderful. So keep up with her, her cancer journey. Fantastic. There. And we have a good announcement before we bring in our first guest. Uh, I've been um, putting this out on the Twitter and the Internet's. Yes, we um, have. Tomorrow, internet. which is uh, Tuesday, November what? Or Tuesday, November 4th. 4th right. Election day. Oh, right. I know, I know it was election day. <laughs> I, know, I know the number of the day. Yes. Uh, we are launching, officially launching the uh, CancerCon VIP Club. Sean, would you like to tell us about that? Yes, the CancerCon VIP Club, I can't talk, um, is a fantastic way to get involved, ensure the success of what is our Super Bowl of all of our events. And uh, fundraise help make it possible. So uh, check it out, cancercon.org, and learn how to fundraise. And uh, finally, wrapping up, we have uh, some sad news. I mean, predicted, but sad news. The young woman with brain cancer who moved to Oregon that's been in the news, uh, was it compassionate? Is that what it's yeah, called? Death with Dignity. Death with Dignity. Uh, Brittany Maynard. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm, no, Mallory and I are just going to start hiding our responses. Tweedle the dignity. Brittany Maynard, uh, rest in peace. She did choose to end her life after a lot of, um, I would imagine, gut-wrenching, wrangling, last-minute decisions, um, and uh, she will be missed. But her message was made loud and clear. Uh, what, no matter what side of the argument you're on, you're definitely on a side of the argument. And I think it's really important that this is now at least for now, a major national conversation, the right to die with dignity on your terms and not your disease's terms. Yes. Well done. So, Brittany Manning, you will be missed. And lastly, I will be going to Burbank on Thursday to meet with ABC Family. Hey. Uh, the Ricci BFFs out there. Hopefully, we'll be doing some really cool stuff with them for next season, season 1B, which season starts 1B. in February. Have they really and labeled that? It's season 1, yeah. part 2, really. Oh, okay. 
They and, split their seasons. Yeah. Cool. Like Sex in the City Season 6, Part A and Part B. I'm sorry I know that, but I just do. There's got to be another show we can get you on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Not on Netflix. So that's yeah. exciting. But there is a um, Chasing Life Christmas special coming up, and we should be somehow a part of that as well. So uh, yeah. here's hoping that I do not in any way, shape, or form have any sort of travel curse. Yes. Well, you're not coming with me, so you won't experience it. No, I'm going to stay here, and my subway will probably revolt (laughs) just because. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, let's kick off our show here, guys. Here we go. Coming up here, Thomas Cantley has traveled all over the world as a visual artist. In 2009, he was diagnosed with stage 3 testicular cancer. He now has completed two journeys across two countries, pushing a six-foot inflated testicle as Mr. Baldy. Yes, you heard that right. Tom has been featured in multiple news outlets and is in the final stages of his documentary and book. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the one and only Tom Canley. Sir. Hey, hey. Welcome to the crazy, stupid cancer show, my friend. I, I don't think you've ever been on, but I, I'm sorry about that because you are so deserving of this amazing attention you're getting. <laughs> this is my first applause I've ever had. You know, even though it was animated, that's all good. <laughs> right. No, there's actually a studio audience here. Yeah, it's great. It's like the Today Show. They come with signs. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk. Can I call you Tom? Do people call you Tom? Or you first yeah, you can call me Tom, Tom, Thomas, Mr. Baldy, uh, whatever you want. I mean, you and I have been connected in one way or another for many, many years now. And, uh, you know, you've kind of seen the birth of the young adult cancer world. I mean, since, even since 2009, when you kind of entered the club no one wants to belong to, you, you've been very active and, and very disruptive, and, and you've gotten a lot of attention for yourself. Um, I was hoping you could take us back to 2008 and talk us through your life back then. And uh, what led you to this diagnosis, symptoms, primary care, and just talk us through your journey. Share your story with us. Yeah, so um, in 2008, I was actually, you know, I was a photographer. I was a filmmaker in New York City. And for me, um, you know, the only thing I ever knew about testicular cancer, let alone, was like, you know, Lance Armstrong, or you could get it by sitting on a bicycle. Um, you know, I didn't know much about it. So for me, I'm pretty much everything I advocate against. Uh, I was that young guy who had the early on signs where, I mean, I had lower abdominal pain, lower back pain, and I had a little bit discomfort. And uh, for me, I had an abnormality in my testicle. There wasn't an actual lump. It was... And for me, being a guy, I was kind of like, oh, you know what, go away. And... uh, and in doing so, it just it, it never did. Um, it started to it started to grow, and it started to come in come here come in and out. And then by the time in 2009, this was like late 2008, 2009, I ended up getting diagnosed. It ended up actually I was talking to a friend of mine, who's an ER doctor in, in NYC, and you know she said that there's a high ratio of young guys who are actually diagnosed um, are usually diagnosed in the ER. And that's what it kind of took to me was I ended up having to go until I couldn't handle the pain anymore. I couldn't even put on pants because my testicle actually swelled up to the size of a small orange, and I was admitted into uh, NYU hospital. Wow. So just a small orange, really? Just like, yeah, yeah like, like it was like a, a large clementine. <laughs> okay. So a little bigger than like a lime, but not quite a nectarine. Yeah, that's not so quite deep. a nectarine. <laughs> we need to get the fruit scale of, of testicularitis, whatever it's called. It's like a plum tomato. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it's a plum. I'm happy with plurot. We'll stick with it. In any case, um, so what was your, uh, and yes, and, and testicular cancer is the number one disease in men in their late 20s and early 30s. Um, I think even up to like 45, it's the number one cancer in men. So you were actually part of a club that did exist at that point. So you're at NYU, and tell us what happens next. Do you have, did you have an orchiectomy? Did you have chemotherapy? Yeah, I had the uh, orchiectomy. Uh, for me, they said, okay, it vastly spread to your um, lymphatic area and your abdominals, and uh, they said that I was stage 3 borderline, well, stage 3A, and that they said that it's vastly progressed into my lymph nodes. So for me, they said, 
because um, I, I grew up, I'm originally Canadian, but um, I grew up in the United States. They said to me, they go, all right, Thomas, it's actually progressed. Uh, what we need to do is you, need, you have the option right now. You can either go back to Canada for your continuing treatment or you can stay here in the U.S. And they said, all right, this is how much it's going to be. And I said, all right, Canada, here I come. <laughs> so, so, again, um, by the way, we do not hold it against you for being Canadian. <laughs> I like that you offer that you. disclaimer, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> we might not be accepting, but we are. We probably are. Yeah, and, and so, my my um oh sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, you um it's all you. Okay, I was I was gonna say so my stage because I was stage three A, uh it was fairly progressive, went to my lymphatic area. Um interesting part about me is I actually never had chemo or radiation. I had the opportunity because my um it was vastly spreading and they said that they could do a more um aggressive surgery and that they had to go right in to do the RPLND, which is that lymphatic dissection. So I had quite a few lymph nodes that were, you know, being affected. And for me, what I wanted to do is I was going, okay, what are my options? Do I have to have My doctor said, well, we could do follow-up. We could um, do a surveillance with you afterwards. But right now, if we were to go in for surgery, because um, I said to him, I said, you know, if you give me, if you give me chemo, it's going to compromise my immune system. I'm not going to be as strong. And he said, all it would do would with the chemotherapy for my kind of stage and prognosis would be it would just it would eliminate a little bit less of um aggressiveness of the surgery and i said you know what are my options and he basically said well it's up to you and i said you know what i'm going to try and you know if you don't get it at all see if you can give me you know give me a cycle of chemo afterwards do whatever but right now i want to kind of go in clean and uh for me now i'm i'm 5 years out and I had the lymphatic dissection, and I ended up having um, – they put me on surveillance program, so it was every month I had to have blood work and do my CT scan and stuff like that, make sure that they'd never had any reoccurrence so that they didn't leave anything. I had a slight nodule on my lung, and they just had to surveil that uh, quite heavily. And then after that, I mean, here I am. Did it terrify you to not have chemotherapy? Um, it do- It did. I mean, I was quite – I was very nervous uh, because, you know, when you find out, you know, you first have cancer, as you know, um, you, you listen to your doctors. They want to, they suggest, you know, kind of going, okay, let's do a cycle of chemo, let's do this, or let's do radiation. And then for me, I just, you know, I've always been that kind of risky guy, aka the ballsy name, and I just, for me, I just, I didn't want to do it. I said, if I had the option... If they said to me, all right, Thomas, we need to do chemo, we need to do this, like this is in your best, you know, interest, then I would have been like, okay, you know what, okay, doctor, do it. But for me, they gave me an option, and I'm that guy that will always take that other option. So I want to talk, uh, this this could potentially be controversial. I've heard testicular cancer referred to as the breast cancer of men because you're losing a vital sexual body part and it changes your perspective to yourself, it changes your perspective to potential partners, and do you think that's a fair comparison? Um, I think, like, being so heavily um, kind of in the testicular cancer world, obviously now, and and meeting a lot of young guys, um, I think it's very, in ways, um, it's it's very comparable uh, in the sense where I meet a lot of young guys um, everything from construction workers to big finance guys, everything. Like I have people reach out to me from all over the world. Um, because breast cancer has had a fantastic awareness, um, testicular cancer is kind of the baby uh, in that aspect where it hasn't had a lot of um, care and tenderness and awareness, but it's also we have such a, because it is the male organ, um, a lot of these young guys, they feel that they have this Superman complex and basically, a lot of the facts is like it, it you know, it, it uh, takes away from their manhood. Um, so a lot of the young guys have a hard time coming, you know, coming to terms or talking about it. Like I've talked to guys from all across the country, you know, everyone, like even military guys, and they go, "Hey, Thomas, like, you know, I love what you're doing, but you know, this family member doesn't know about this. Like, what is about this? Like, a lot of the common questions that I get are usually around." 
you know, the sexual areas of like, you know, if I'm meeting a girl or I'm doing this, like how do I, you know, it's a lot of the recovery process what the guys are really nervous about. Oh, well, you're very open. We're going to get to your, your PR campaign with this, pushing this ball across the country. But let's talk about that if you're comfortable. How do you talk to uh, people that you date about this situation? How does one disclose that at what point? And obviously this could be different for everybody, but if you'd be willing to share, I'd love to hear what you found works for you. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Um, I, I'm obviously, as you know, I'm very open. Um, and, you know, I won't disclose names or anything like that, but I can also tell you certain situations of young guys that have approached me and asking me questions, how they deal with it. And But for me, it's if someone isn't going to accept me for who I am, I mean, usually when, you know, I'm a single guy, if I'm going to be going up to a girl, I'm going to be dating them, whether it's online or I meet them in a bar, whatever the medium is, I usually, because <laughs> now as quite, you know, out there in the public, first thing they're going to do, if they're adding me on Facebook or Instagram or they're going to even Google me, this this is going to come up. So my situation is a little different from some guys. So I have to immediately tell girls that I meet. It's going, hey, you know, I pushed a giant ball across the country. I had testicular cancer. <laughs> this. And uh, so for me, I have to be very open. And if a girl doesn't take me in for who I am and what I've been through, um, that's a huge issue. I mean, I've had girlfriends break up with me because they said, Thomas, you know, this ballsy stuff's a lot, but you need to choose. And I say, I've said to them, I go, you know what? <laughs> you know your answer. If you're making me choose over ballsy, sorry, you already know that you're not worth my time. So for me, anyone that kind of takes in that account, um, but I mean, there's issues where I have young guys who've come up to me where they've lost both testicles. They have had two prosthetics and they aren't able to have kids. Um, I am able to have kids. So that's a lot of the first questions that are asked with young guys. They go, okay, you know, you know, being at my age, I mean, I'm 31 um, and other young guys because of cancer, a lot of the girls are nervous. Um, some people don't know how to react to it because it is a young man's cancer. And a lot of the time in our age group, um, you don't really encounter that very often. I mean, testicular cancer, like you said, you know, it's very, very common in that age group in young men. Uh, but at the same time, it's not that common. So when people do come across it, um, some girls get nervous and they go, okay, um, you know, what do I do here? I mean, some guys have one testicle. I have one testicle. And some guys have two. Some guys even have, they're so nervous. They're like, okay, you know what? I'm so insecure. I need to have this other testicle just in there. And I go, why? Why do you need that? Well, like, you know, what makes you want to have that? Is that your own insecurity? Is it because you're worried about, you know, a significant other? Um, so there are different aspects, and I'm very open about talking about it, and I've come across a lot of it um, because it is in that gentle area. Um, men get very nervous. But for me, I'm a little bit of a freak in nature. Like, my books are everywhere, you know, so. So let's, let's actually talk about that. Fertility clearly is one of the most relevant hot-button issues that make young adult cancer different than cancer at any other age, no matter who you are. And, I mean, I had brain cancer 19 years ago, and I was able to sperm bank because I was treated in pediatrics. It, do you feel at this point now that when young guys are diagnosed with testicular cancer, the doctors that they see are aware of fertility rights and encourage them to bank sperm in the event they need to have a double orchiectomy? I mean, it's, I mean, every, I mean, every doctor is different, every prognosis um, and whatnot. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the doctors are educated and they know obviously um, what these young guys should be doing, but the one thing the problem is and the issues are is that young guys themselves need to be educated. Um, they need to know because the one thing is when it comes down to it all is I always, I always tell a lot of these young guys is, hey, you know what, don't, you know, get second opinions. Because the one thing, you know, when you're getting diagnosed, because it's very common, especially in testicular cancer, it's very common to be misdiagnosed. And in doing so, I wish... You know, I had another opinion uh, in the beginning, but for, you know, when you hear that first diagnosis of, okay, you have cancer, um, you know, this is what we need to do, you immediately kind of react and um, you do whatever they say. 
And the thing is, is it's also good to do what I found um, is just it's kind of like you can't rely on the Internet. You know what I mean? There's so many unreliable resources. But there's also there are good resources out there, and it's good to educate yourself. Be connected with amazing organizations like yours and other ones. Like, you know, I connected actually with Immerman Angels uh, in the very beginning. I met Johnny Immerman, and he was, you know, when you have these mentorships and these amazing survivors out there that you can kind of connect to, they've been through it, um, you know, they can advise in certain ways. I mean, they're not medical professionals in, in those areas, but at least they can go, you know what, I wish I had this or I had this option. Um, I mean, I my doctor immediately said to me, he goes, all right, Thomas, um, you're not going to be going through chemo. We're going to have this invasive surgery, but we're going to bank your sperm just in case. Um, so the hard thing, too, is just kind of every doctor is different. Like, I don't know, you know, what these other guys' doctors are like or yours. Like, I don't know if it was suggested to you to, you know, bank your sperm in the beginning or it was just automatic. But for me, they gave me an option and then, you know, my doctor said, you know, it's a really good idea that you do it just in case we have to do chemo afterwards. Well, let's get to the uh, the highlight of your, your personality and everything you represent now. What possessed you to <laughs> push a six-foot inflated ball across the country? Obviously, it makes sense. We understand um, this is great awareness. But, but where did that idea originally come from? Um, I mean, as, as you know me, you've known me for quite a few years. Um, it's It started from I wanted to kind of out there. Um, testicular cancer is, you know, there. I mean, there's amazing organizations and people doing really amazing things. Um, and for me, I wasn't with an organization. I was friends with all of them, and I was an advocate. And for me, it was I wanted to have a hook. I wanted to have kind of something different because I've been I've been documenting this and working on a documentary since since this all started. So I have five years of collective footage. Um, but what I had to do is I wanted to draw attention because I realized, in in especially the testicular cancer world, um, the attention there's not much in it, and I wanted to kind of use a, an idea um, and psychology, you know, bring bring kind of a in a different way. So the thing is, is what I did when I pushed this ball across the country, my first one in Canada, it allowed an idea to bring people to me. Um, it wasn't anything forced. So my whole goal when I went across both countries, I did it all also, I don't know if you knew this, but I did it all through the kindness of people. So how I slept, uh, where I slept, how I transported, um, and where, you know, how we ate, everything um, was reliant on people. Um, and that was the thing. I wanted to kind of bring that allowance in and going, you know what, I'm not looking for money, but what we're doing is we're looking for help. We're looking to connect with you. And it was an amazing social experiment that just kind of blew up. Um, people just were willing to help. I mean, in the beginning it was a struggle uh, in both countries. And then once it kind of took, took form, people were like just calling into the next state, on media, trying to get us a place to stay, um, and it was just a great social experiment just to see how people can come together and really help you out. I mean, we made it. I mean, it took us over a month and a half to get across the United States. And we had vans donated. We had Witch Rich, a uh, sandwich company based out of Dallas, come on board and met the CEO. And he sponsored a, our food for the rest of the trip. Um, cancer survivors bringing us in, taking, cooking us like meals. Um, we lost crew members uh, because they couldn't handle the reliance on that. And then we gained uh, a couple that were survivors that I met along the way. One guy who we met in San Francisco, uh, he never met another testicular cancer survivor before. And I convinced him to, uh, you know, continue the duration of the trip. That, that That's mind-boggling to me that you could still go completely isolated, unaware that there are other young adults, not only with your cancer, but with any cancer, that you would really believe that you're the only one walking the earth with your condition. And, and that's what really upsets me, that, that that happened to that young man. I, we have a, a few minutes, maybe a minute or two left, but I did want to get to that, you know, by the end of your journey, the ball was covered in messages. And, uh, you know, the kindness of strangers and all the message, all the messages you were putting out there, what was your, your takeaway? I mean, well, first of all, where did you land? What was the final finish line for you? And then what did you do with the ball? Uh, well, 
uh, we landed in New York City. So we started in Santa Monica. We went to, um, we ended up in Columbus Circle uh, in New York City where, you know, New York is where I reside. And, um, you know, right now the ball uh, is in hopes. I mean, we have actually a couple different talks of our next four countries that we're going to be pushing the ball in. But right now I kind of want to put the, I want to kind of have the ball transported around to different places, um, different cancer societies that want to have it for a little bit um, because, you know, like you brought up, the signatures. Um, when people would approach me with the ball, they'd ask what it was for, and they asked if they could sign it. And I said, you can sign it, but what I'd like you to sign it for is this ball is for the cancer survivors. This is for the people who you're connected to, who are either struggling, who you've lost, who are going through it right now. This is their ball for them. And whether it's, it didn't even have to be testicular cancer, it was breast, it was ovarian. I've had every type of cancer on that ball. And we ended up, there's barely an inch left on it. I'd love for you guys to actually sign it um, before we pack it away. Um, but it's, it was amazing, the stories, the people that come up to it, and just the therapy of writing it and delivering those messages on it is just, it's, it's an art piece now. And I hope that, you know, I can continue across the country and educate in, in the United States and use it um, because it's, it was such an amazing therapy tool for people because once they come up to that book and put that pen and, and marker on there and write their connected story to cancer, I've had the biggest bodybuilders to the littlest old ladies just ball their eyes out but just hug me right after and felt connected. And that was the amazing um, component that I didn't realize, which was so amazing with this ball push, was that, we're all connected together and we're all fighting. We're there for each other and we're unified, you know? Okay. Thomas Canley is a five-year survivor of stage three testicular cancer. You can visit his project at mrballsy.com or follow him on Twitter at weareballsy. Tom, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for having me. Okay. Good night. Tom Canley, the man. Okay, Sean, get ready for the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.supercancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be coming up in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you to uh, miss out. And we have Super Cancer events coming up in... Maureen? Denver, Anchorage, and Philadelphia. Plus and we if, just wrapped some up in Kansas City and Houston. Kansas City. And if you would like to host your own meetup, go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup and learn how. Cancer is lonely. We've got a cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app that brings instant, anonymous, one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by any cancer. Visit instapeer.org and sign up to join our beta tester community. Immortalize yourself on the app as well as the beta squad backer with a tax-deductible donation of $500. We launched a news feed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed. And it's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstores.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got awesome skateboards and hoodies, and don't forget about Flip the Cancer Bird, our latest plushie mascot. StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Okay, we got a great, a great segment here coming up. If I can get these papers together. All right, we got uh, Susan Stewart. is a 25-year survivor of bone marrow transplant for acute myelogenous leukemia and founder of the BMT InfoNet. She's married and the mother of a 21-year-old son, conceived with a little help after some high-dose chemotherapy and a transplant. Dr. Amir Steinberg is a hematologist-oncologist focusing on hematologic malignancies, including lymphoma and leukemia and bone marrow transplantation. At Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, he was inspired to go into the field of oncology after being diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma himself as a senior in high school in 
Houston, Texas. And finally, rounding it out, Sarah Patterson is a 16-year survivor of acute myelogenous leukemia and advocate for cancer survivors. She is a mother of two rambunctious young boys and together with her husband runs an award-winning public affairs consulting practice based in Austin, Texas. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Susan Stewart, Amir Steinberg, and Sarah Patterson. It's a mouthful. Welcome, folks. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank we you are, for having uh, us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I, I was uh, looking at our calendar over the last seven years. We've never done a show on transplants. And uh, I, it, and it took, what is it, 326 episodes. So uh, I guess you're welcome at this point. No, well, it's our pleasure to be here. <laughs> no, we're really, really excited to get into this and get to the heart of the matter because this is significant technology and science that has proven incredibly valuable and saved so many lives. But I, I just think there's there's uh, people don't know enough about it, and I was hoping we could just start the conversation um, with with uh, with uh, with Susan. Uh, you are the uh, founder of the BMC Infonet, and you are yourself a 25-year survivor. Congratulations to all three survivors on our panel tonight. Um, can you just tell us, basically, what is a transplant? There's many different kinds. That's right. Well, in the old days, there were bone marrow transplants. That was the uh, initial technology. And what that involved was collecting blood-forming stem cells from the bone marrow and transplanting them into a person who had some sort of life-threatening illness, usually a blood disorder like leukemia or lymphoma or aplastic anemia or myelodysplasia with the idea of uh, wiping out that person's a disease and immune system with high-dose chemotherapy, transplanting those blood-forming stem cells into that patient, letting those stem cells produce healthy blood cells, and hopefully curing the patient. Since then, uh, there's been lots of changes in the field. You can now collect blood-forming stem cells from the bloodstream, and those are called peripheral blood stem cell transplants and are really the most common kind of transplant being done for adults these days. And you can even collect blood-forming stem cells from the umbilical cord or placenta of a newborn child and transplant them into patients, and those are called cord blood transplants. So there's lots of different kinds. Uh, sometimes you can be transplanted with your own stem cells that were collected previously prior to high-dose chemotherapy, and other times you get transplanted with cells donated by another healthy donor. So is it very similar to you have to be matched with somebody, and it's kind of like... Like um, like a be the match program, or is it more complicated than that? You do need to be matched, and a lot of times people are confused. They think that they need to have the same blood type as the donor in order for that transplant to be successful. But as Dr. Steinberg can explain in more detail, it's actually antigens or markers on the white blood cells that determine whether or not you're a match. Your white blood cell markers are inherited from your parents, uh, so a sibling is more likely to have the same markers on those white blood cells than anybody else. Those are called human leukocyte antigens. But if you don't have a sibling that has the same HLA type or human leukocyte antigen type, then you can search a registry like Be the Match and try to find an unrelated person who has those same antigens and hopefully have a successful transplant with them. Well, that is a great segue to Dr. Steinberg. Uh, we always love having people on the show who kind of walk the walk and talk the talk because you have been there as a patient and now you are a hemonc and uh, that's quite extraordinary. Did you know at your, I mean, in high school when this happened that this was going to be your path? Well, I, I didn't know quite what I wanted to be. You know, there's a lot of things I wanted to be, uh, but, you know, certainly having been diagnosed with uh, lymphoma and getting treated uh, at MD Anderson where I grew up in Houston, uh, kind of inspired me to go into the field. And Dr. Hagemeister, who was my doctor, I kind of wanted to, say, model my my uh, career after him, you know, he's a, as a researcher, as a clinician, and uh, just as a guy with a good rapport with patients. And uh, I, I see in your bio here, you, you obviously tell your story to a lot of the patients who have what you had, correct? And what what kind of response do you get? when patients find out that you yourself are a survivor? Well, so as uh, Thomas had brought up uh, regarding his testicular cancer, when he meets, for example, women or other people, and kind of, you know, nowadays on the Internet, you can find out everything. 
So pretty much oftentimes nowadays I have to be uh, pretty upfront with my patients and let them know. They probably are, a lot of them already know. They they do the research on the net, who their doctor is going to be. So I'm pretty open about it, you know, It's uh, and uh, I feel comfortable with it. I, I think it's uh, good for patients to know what I've been through and that, hey, they can get th- they can get through that as well. So let's segue to Sarah here, 16-year survivor AML. Um, dare I ask if you two are amongst young boys or twins? No, they are not. <laughs> okay. They're actually both adopted, and they're both different parents. So. <laughs> okay. Well, that 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 makes your story very interesting. Why don't you uh, start from the beginning? Uh, well, I was diagnosed when I was 15 years old. Um, I presented with a very sore throat, and they put me on antibiotics, sent me home, just figured I was a tired teenager. And I came back about two weeks later with um, severe bruising, um, fatigue, bleeding issues, and um, that's when they tested my blood, and I was diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia. And uh, I assume back then you had lost your hair while a high school student. Yes. I <laughs> Well, I went through treatment um, at, in Indianapolis. I went through um, three rounds of pretty intense chemotherapy. The last one resulted in a bone marrow transplant from my brother. Um, he happened to be a perfect match on those antigens that they were speaking of before. So, And that was 16 years ago. It will actually be 17 in July. So, so there's a running joke. And I don't know if this is actually funny or not, but that technically you could now get away with murder because they'll blame your brother. Yes, exactly. And I, I um, taunt him with that quite often. Oh, good. <laughs> because only spill your blood, though. Don't drop any of your hairs. No, no, don't drop any hair. Just yeah. blood. Feed right? <laughs> all over the crime scene. <laughs> and my husband and I were actually very relieved that we didn't have to get a blood test done when we got married. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been interesting back back then. Exactly. <laughs> that that speaks to such a uh, the, the incredible nature of what transplants can do for you. You literally have the DNA of another human being in your body, and it allows you to regenerate yourself, almost rebooting yourself from scratch. Um, can we talk about some of the? Uh, obviously, we, we like the joke that when the doctor says you're cured, go home. That's not the end of the story. Clearly, this is not something that's just like go home and live your life. I would imagine there are complications with this, and it impedes your lifestyle. Uh, why don't we go back to uh, back to Susan, how BMC Infonet uh, connects people around those issues? Well, there are possible complications, and nobody gets them all, but everybody gets something or other that they have to deal with, either for a short period of time or a long period of time. So starting with the effects of high-dose chemotherapy, Um, Obviously, infertility is an issue that affects males and females alike, although not everyone becomes infertile after the high-dose chemotherapy, but that's an issue people have to deal with long-term. There can be some sexual dysfunction issues for a short period of time or a longer period of time with which people need help dealing. Uh, If you're getting transplanted with cells from a donor, be it related or unrelated, There's a side effect called graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, which is a situation where the donor's cells have been in another person's body and they've been trained for years to recognize what belongs in that person's body and what doesn't belong. And when something that doesn't belong in that person's body comes across their path, they're trained to attack it and destroy it. Well, when you put those cells into the patient's body, sometimes those cells look around the patient's body and say, hey, these organs or these tissues are not something that's familiar to me, so I'm going to unleash an immune system attack on them. And that can result in a mild or moderate case of graft-versus-host disease, which can be a skin rash or mouth ulcers, or can result in some very severe manifestations of graft-versus-host disease, which can be you know, very, very severe uh, blisters or skin discoloration, uh, some organ damage, which can... Yeah, be transient, can only last for a year or two or sometimes last longer. And that can be a very serious side effect both emotionally and uh, physically, particularly since the frontline treatment of that often is steroids, which in and of themselves create additional problems with mood swings and what have you. So there are, there are long-term effects. There's emotional effects as <clears throat> with any cancer treatment as well. You know, you're, you've been through a very 
rigorous, uh, to say the least, medical procedure, and yet you're not 100% sure that you're cured. And so there's a period of time where you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. But hopefully as time goes by, uh, life normalizes. You're able to adapt to your changing appearance or your new situation um, and live a, a new normal and live a very good life as as I have for 25 years. Well, thank you for uh, giving us that uh, that's some great insight. And clearly, yes, like this is really about quality of life and dignity and, and quality of care all wrapped up under this notion of survivorship. Uh, Dr. Steinberg, we had a question from the chat room, which is how is it determined if you need a transplant and then what type of transplant would actually work for that person? Can you talk us through that, that clinical process? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, so it isn't quite clear-cut, uh, but I'll try the best I can to explain kind of where the decision, uh, where the decisions are most clear-cut. And one of those, for example, is when you have a leukemia, like acute myeloid leukemia, and uh, when, when someone's diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoid leukemia, ALL, uh, we measure and we look at their chromosomes and we look at certain markers in their body to determine whether they're considered high risk or more likely to recur after they just get chemotherapy alone. And if they're considered high risk, we're a lot more likely to then want to find a transplant uh, donor for, for the patient. And the type of transplant we want to find for those patients who have acute lymphoid leukemia or myeloid leukemia is from another person. Uh, Susan mentioned, uh, for example, using one's own stem cells and versus another person's stem cells, and we would want to use another person's because you want to introduce a new immune system to attack that leukemia because it's going to recognize that leukemia as, hey, that's foreign, that's bad, I've never seen this before, and so it's going to attack it. And oftentimes we'll also do transplants, allogeneic transplants, transplants from another person, another person's cells in patients who have leukemia that doesn't respond initially to chemotherapy. And then... On the flip side, lymphomas, we oftentimes tend to use stem cells from the patients. And the way that works is that we just really want to give super high doses of chemotherapy to wipe out the lymphoma, either if it didn't respond to chemotherapy initially or, again, if we consider them high-risk leukemias. And so we're going to want to just really kind of just almost like nuke them with chemotherapy. And the problem with that is that also nukes their blood counts, so their, their their blood counts wouldn't recover. And the way around that is that we save their stem cells in a freezer, and we introduce their stem cells back into them after the chemotherapy. And those stem cells were not touched by the chemo, so it allows their blood counts to recover. So just for clarification, like the, the um, Webster Dictionary is there a specific difference between stem cell transplant and bone marrow transplant, or is it all under one umbrella of transplants? Uh, yeah, so colloquially we use the word bone marrow transplant. That's what I think we're most familiar with. But if you were to say, I would say that bone marrow transplant um, is a type of stem cell transplant, and peripheral stem cell transplants are a type of stem cell transplant. Because and cord blood transplants are a type of stem cell transplant. It's just the source of the stem cell transplant is now a lot more varied. Whereas, let's say, 20 years ago, you know, it just was mainly just bone marrow was the source of stem cells. So that's kind of how it's got its word. It's kind of like Kleenex. You know, we think of like tissue paper. You know, tissue. We just think yeah. of Kleenex or a Xerox machine because that was like the first right. kind. Yeah, what's really what you're really looking for in the transplant are the cells that are in bone marrow called hematopoietic or blood-forming cells. And, and for years, that was the only place we knew to get them. Now, instead of just getting them from bone marrow, we can also give patients drugs to stimulate the production of those special cells and make them move into the bloodstream where they can be collected without putting the donor or the patient under general anesthesia. So when they're collected from the bloodstream, that's when they're called peripheral blood or bloodstream stem cell transplants, and those same kind of cells are found, as I said before, in the umbilical cord and placenta of newborn babies. So you can, you know, you can get them from that source as well and transplant them. But they're all blood-forming stem cells. It's just a matter of where you happen to get those stem cells from. 
So, okay, so everything would fall under the blanket of stem cell transplant then. So right. would, is there is there a, an ideal place to derive stem cells from? Is it better to get umbilical cord stem cells or bone marrow stem cells, or is it just a matter of, you know, there's more bone marrow stem cells available? Um, well, that, that, that's a great question, and um, it's still being debated right now in the bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant field. And just in general, the advantage of using uh, peripheral blood or, you know, stem cells from the bloodstream is that it's, first of all, you got more donors. More people are willing to donate stem cells from their blood rather than going through a procedure to harvest or extract their stem cells from uh, from their uh, hip bones, basically. It's a, an operative procedure. And so it's easier to get. And also um, the side effects, uh, you know, they, they their blood counts recover more quickly. You know, after they get their chemotherapy and then their stem cells infused, their blood counts recover more quickly. But the, the, side, the, the they've got a higher side effect, a higher risk of getting more graft-versus-host disease if you get their stem cells from the peripheral blood. Whereas with the bone marrow, they have less chance in general of getting graft-versus-host disease, but maybe their blood counts might take a little bit slower to recover. And then cord blood, we really can get, you know, it's, cord blood is really advantageous in that we can use cord blood for patients who we can't find an ideal perfect match for in their bone marrow because that cord blood is more immature. But the problem with more immature stem cells in the cord blood is it takes longer for those stem cells to mature in your body. And so that can allow the cancer to grow more quickly. You know, it, it basically, you know, you're, you're allowing it to brew because the immune system's not yet uh, fully formed within your body once you receive the cord blood. But this is all fascinating science. We've, we've gone through this incredible research over the last couple of years to know this now. So has all of this yielded better transplants and are more people surviving transplants and going on to live, you know, uh, better lives resultantly? Absolutely. You know, uh, we just recently produced a video called The History of Transplantation, which I worked on for several months, and it was fascinating what happened back in the 1950s and in early 1960s in the field of transplant. Um, I interviewed people who were survivors, but only a handful of survivors from that period of time because the majority of patients who underwent the treatment, you know, didn't last more than three months at best if they lasted that long at all. Today, there's 20,000 transplants done in the United States alone, and there's very good survival rates, particularly among younger people. Um, so the, the transplant mortality has dropped. The risks associated um, are still substantial, but they are certainly much less than they have been in the past. And there's a lot of emphasis now not just on getting you through the, the transplant and getting you out the door. We used to joke as patients that, uh, you know, we got our one-year, two-year, and three-year, uh, do you have a pulse call from the transplant center? Well, it's it's now right. more than that. There's now a lot of focus on what is your quality of life after transplant? Um, what are your issues? What do we need to help you deal with? So in many ways, the field has vastly improved and is really opportunity, offering the opportunity for a second chance at life to a whole lot more people. So let's get back to Sarah. I know you've been waiting very patiently here. So how are you doing now 16 years later? And if I might ask, the adoption of your children, was that related to your treatments? Um, yes, um, my children were adopted because I, um, because of the bone marrow transplant, I have ovarian failure, um, and so, yeah. But overall, I'm doing pretty well. I've had that side effect. I have a little bit of scarring on my lungs, um, but other than that, um, I'm very blessed. I have not had to deal with chronic graft-versus-host disease. Um, I did have a little bit of acute graft-versus-host disease, which is graft-versus-host in the first 100 days after your transplant. Um, but they actually, I was told at the time that that's actually desired because then the bone marrow would also see any remaining leukemia cells as foreign. Um, but I am doing well. I'm chasing after my kids and running a business and living life. But that speaks to the young adult issues we, we talk about, and all of you are diagnosed as young adults, 
that, uh, and, and I was diagnosed uh, 19 years ago. Uh, Sue, you beat me a little bit, but 25 years, and Amir, I'm not sure how old you are, but, but we all are aware of the, the brutalities in, uh, of the 80s and 90s with care. Um, I wasn't expecting to be told to preserve my fertility. I just happened to be lucky because I was in pediatrics when I was diagnosed. But is that now something that has become a standard of care? Do young adults, in, do patients in their fertile years who have to go through a transplant, are they made aware of their reproductive rights? Dr. Steinberg, is that something that you think is spread around through the hemonc world? Uh, I do think it's gotten better. Uh, but, you know, there's still going to be situations where it's not in the forefront of uh, medical professionals who see patients to, to think, you know, oh, I should ask them, you know, whether they want to do sperm banking or be referred to a reproductive specialist. So, But it is definitely getting better. There's, As Susan was mentioning, we're getting more and more awareness just on long-term repercussions. But unfortunately, sometimes with the uh, cancers that you need transplants for, you got to get treated right away, you know, whether it's for lymphoma or leukemia. And so sometimes we um, don't necessarily, you know, have an opportunity to uh, refer someone for uh, fertility uh, counseling. Uh, you know, they just got to start chemotherapy, uh, you know, as soon as get in the hospital and, and start the uh, drip. We did a show a couple of weeks ago about the latest uh, almost like sci-fi technology in uh, ovary uh, tissue uh, preservation. They can harvest tissue before anything happens and, like, just freeze it forever and then later on, you know, incubate it, have it grow the follicles, and then use the embryos after you're done. So there isn't even any need to, because imagine, I'm sure you're aware of this, going on the hormones to produce the follicles in advance while you're having cancer of a stem cell transplant Probably not the best medical thing to do, although I'm sure lots of young women are doing that. Well, I don't know if a lot of young people are doing it because, I, you know, as you said, it's not always the the wisest decision to make. But I think it's really important for young people to um, not take no for an answer, um, even when you're in the throes of a cancer diagnosis and making, you know, huge treatment decisions. Um, it's important to keep in mind that there is a life ahead of you and to try to take steps to preserve whatever quality of life you can at the moment that you have the opportunity. And I think, you know, all too often, unfortunately, I think um, particularly very young people, people in their teens are a little embarrassed to raise the issue or talk about it, um, and so it doesn't get dealt with appropriately at that point. And and often, too, doctors um, who are not skilled or uh, have knowledge about the various fertility preservation options, uh, don't bring it up because they really don't know what to tell the patients. And rather than refer them out, they, you know, they left things unsaid. So it's really, really important for patients to be their own advocates, to ask a lot of questions, not to be afraid to get a second opinion, ask their peers, uh, really gather as much information as they can. And if they're too overwhelmed, have somebody else do it for them on their behalf so that when they have the opportunity to make a life-changing decision, they can actually do it. So I want to take the remaining time we have to have each of you. We have another question from the forums here. Uh, if we, uh, granted, we're all moving targets because the way we were treated a thousand years ago isn't necessarily the same way people are treated today. But if you'd each be willing to share um, as part of your story, what were the greatest challenges you faced or maybe possibly still face post-transplant? Let's start with Susan. <laughs> oh, where to begin? Um, you know, I think for me, you know, the physical challenges were there, but I think for me the psychological challenges were, were pretty significant in the first few years after transplant. You know, it was almost akin to something like post-traumatic stress syndrome. You could be driving down the highway and you'd, you know, see a light post, which would, you know, create a flashback of some memory from the hospital and you'd get very upset or you'd go into some place and smell food that smelled like hospital food, and that would trigger a flashback. Um, and it really took a long time, and I know it does for other people as well, to um, you know, think about having a future. I know not so much myself, but other people you know, won't buy a plane ticket, won't buy a new dress, won't make a hotel reservation, won't even make a reservation to go out to dinner because they don't feel that they can count on being there 
uh, and available for that event, and they don't want to d- disappoint themselves. So, you know, coming to grips with the fact that, yeah, you maybe are actually going to survive and, and have a good life and putting all of the the uh, emotional trauma of the transplant behind me, that was probably the biggest challenge I had. And Amir? Uh, I would say, you know, I, I, certainly I didn't undergo a, a transplant, but for, for my Hodgkin's therapy, I would say the, the biggest thing was nowadays we don't use as much radiation uh, as we did, say, 20 years ago and even 30 years ago. And that, that's the thing I'm always scared about. Like, what's going to happen, you know, uh, you know, 10 years from now, we have much higher patients who have had radiation are at much higher risk of getting secondary cancers. So I'm always kind of worried about that, you know, but i got to live life to the fullest. And, you know, I, I try and put it out of my mind, but it's something that's always kind of, uh, you know, in the background, you know. So I try and do, like, above and beyond, I do screening with my internist on making sure that, uh, you know, that they can catch things early. So that, that's the biggest thing for me. And, uh, Sarah, 16 years later, I mean, obviously you – I'm sure whatever may be bothering you is completely out, outdone by having two feisty boys, but what are you up to? <laughs> well, I would say that my biggest challenge after transplant was probably um, psychosocial, um, definitely dealing with my peers. Um, because I had a transplant, I um, had a compromised immune system and was taken completely out of socialization for um, a good six months, um, and then even when I was able to re-enter school, I, you know, had to wear a mask and had to sit away from other kids in class, and so that made identifying with my peers a little difficult when people were trying on prom dresses, and I was just wondering if I was going to have hair. Right. <laughs> and I would say that that's um, still probably my biggest challenge today is just, um, you know, that was such a significant event in my life, and how do you bring that up to people that you meet? You know, when does it come up in conversation? How do you expect people to identify with you? So that would be the challenge that I still deal with. Well, I have to tell you, uh, we've been just chatting amongst ourselves here in the studio with, with our staff, and we've been so enlightened. Uh, you know, you have completely changed our understanding of transplants, even though we've been working in this field for so many years now. And we do want to spend a lot more time talking about it. I think it would make a lot of sense to revisit this topic and do another show next spring and have even more young adults who survive transplants engaged with what we're going to be discussing. And, again, bmtinfonet.org. Uh, Is that correct, Susan? That's right. And are you on Twitter? We are on Twitter. Yeah, and your handle? BMT oh, it's also BMT Great. Okay. Well, all right, so thank you all for, for joining us. An incredibly enlightening show. Uh, Susan Stewart, 25-year bone marrow transplant survivor, AML, founder of BMT Infonet. Dr. Amir Steinberg, also a uh, young adult survivor of Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, who is a hemonc uh, doctor at Mount Sinai here in New York. And Sarah Patterson, 16-year AML survivor of, and uh, transplant survivor, mother of two. And uh, you guys, phenomenal work. Thanks so much for joining us. And good luck. We'll talk to you soon. Thank Thank you for having us. Take care. Good night. Take care. Bye. Really? That's amazing. You just, the science is incredible. Yeah, I'm completely astounded. My mind was blown today. I didn't even know that those were all just forms of getting stem cells. Yeah. I I had no idea. I've been working here for two years. I've been doing this for 10. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Sarah, Susan, and Dr. Steinberg, for dropping a huge knowledge bomb on us today. Is that what it's called, a knowledge bomb? It's a knowledge bomb. Okay. It exploded. Like a photobomb, but knowledge. Yeah, mind Mm -hmm. blown. (laughs) Sean, did you learn something today, like on South Park? A lot. We well, can make another uh, reference because Kenny's here. We do like a I killed Kenny thing. Oh, right, that's he's true. Gone. Oh no! Oh no! Exactly. Oh my God! Do they still do that on South Park? He doesn't die in every episode anymore. They acknowledge that. Oh, yeah, that's weird. Anyway, also this is coming from someone who's never watched South Park. Never once. No. Oh no! I'm sorry. You're not I, the only one. I don't watch it either. Okay. Oh, I, I am Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, a really great show. Uh, thanks for listening tonight, folks. And now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, 
to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 326th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests, Thomas Stanley, Susan Stewart, Amir Steinberg, and Sarah Patterson. Next week's show, Stupid Inflammatory Breast Cancer. Join us for an in-depth conversation about this outlier disease of the breast cancer world with Terry Arnold, the founder of the IBC Network Foundation, and Dr. Wendy Woodward to talk about this oft-misdiagnosed disease. Barbara Spotlight on Holly St. Clair. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, that ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny K. Maureen Smith, my Mallory Rivera, Sean Shapiro, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. We'll see you back here live next Monday day. Good night, folks. Hey, yo, we gotta raise awareness. It's a gift we strive. Cause not every cancer survivor's over 65. We're all veterans of a battle. And the bulk of us more. In this world, too many soldiers are serving multiple tours. So.